Thank you, Hadley and worship team. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I just want to let you know that we are in for an unusual passage of Scripture this morning. But it is a passage of Scripture that I hope is encouraging to you. By the time we're done, you'll be even more convinced than you already are of the unconquerable power of God. And that no matter how much Satan may rage, either in this present age of world history or during the latter half of the tribulation as is depicted in Revelation 12, no matter how much he may rage, he will not conquer, he will not win, because God has already secured the victory. And if you belong to God, then your victory is secured as well. The title of today's message is The Divine Defeat of the Defiant Dragon. The Divine Defeat of the Defiant Dragon. Revelation chapter 12 is our text. Before we dive into the text, I want to give you a brief background of the overview, uh, a historical background of Revelation. This book was written by John the Apostle approximately A.D. 95 on the island of Patmos, a small rock that served as a Roman penal colony for political prisoners and criminals who had uh, committed crimes against the state. John, in the eyes of Rome, was such a person, and as a devout Christian who refused to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, John was sentenced to exile and hard labor as an old man by the way, on the island of Patmos. This book, the book of Revelation, is the final book of the New Testament. It represents the close of the biblical canon. Revelation 22, 18 through 19, the wording of Revelation 22, 18 through 19, indicates to us that this specific book of Revelation has concluded God's special revelation to man, at least for this present stage of world history. And thus, there has been no further special revelation since John finished writing this particular book of Revelation. Revelation was written to encourage the New Testament church, who was already facing persecution at the hands of Rome because of their faithfulness to Christ. Near the end of the first century AD, there began the first of ten waves of empire-wide persecution in the Roman Empire. People everywhere in the Western world at that time were experiencing persecution from the Romans if they claimed loyalty to Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.9, John says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation. Uh, Thlipsis is the idea. It's a, a pressing down, a crushing, affliction, persecution is the idea. Partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. One such church that John wrote to that is uh, paradigmatic of the other churches that were suffering persecution is the church of Smyrna. Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to Smyrna through John, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, Revelation was written to these original seven churches that we see listed in chapters 2 and 3, but it was also written for the benefit of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. And Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have experienced the same type of persecution, suffering, torture, martyrdom, and even, even cruel, cruel deaths at the hands of those who hate God. And this book has served for those 2,000 years as a source of encouragement. The evil one and his minions may rage and even afflict, torment, torture, and persecute to the point of death. But we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God absolutely will win. His victory is already guaranteed. Therefore, Revelation encourages believers by revealing God's complete sovereignty over future events, over all peoples and nations, and over Satan and his demons. In this book, we see God's future plans for the culmination of this present stage of world history in which he will both judge the wicked and rescue his own. 
specifically following a seven-year period of divine judgment known as the tribulation or uh, from studying Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's 70th week, God will then usher in the millennial kingdom of Christ, a literal 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus here on earth mentioned in the first part of Revelation chapter 20, which will conclude with the final defeat of Satan and the commencing of the eternal state in which believers will enjoy pure fellowship with God forever and ever, and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain. Death will be no more. Sin will be no more. And all that will be left is pure and unbroken fellowship with God. For so long, the scripture says that people cannot see God and live. No one has seen God the Father. People have seen God the Son, but no one has seen God the Father. God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. And yet, what do we see at the end of Revelation? The servants of God will be with God and they will see his face. Revelation gives us hope. It gives us courage. It gives us joy. It gives us confidence. And the world is getting darker. No doubt about it. We are not near the levels of persecution that are described in Revelation. We're going to see through the efforts of Satan, as we're going to see today in chapter 12, and then when we get to study this book next, through the persecution at the hands of the Antichrist and his false prophet, as described in chapter 13, how believers during the time of the tribulation, both Jew and Gentiles alike, will be tortured and martyred. We're not there yet. Certain parts of the world, it is bad, but worldwide on a global scale, we're not there yet. However, it is getting hard. It is getting darker. All you have to do if is log on to Twitter and see what the world thinks of people who say that there's only two genders and that man is created in God's image and that life in the womb is sacred and that marriage is sacred to God. Just see what the world thinks of people who say statements like that and you see the fierce hatred of this world. It's a demonic hatred, a satanic hatred. What causes us to press on with courage and hope and joy and even fearlessness as we share God's truth with a lost and dying world? The fact that God wins. He wins. What's the purpose of Revelation? We see this in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near. Near and soon are words used in literature, both Revelation and in other parts of the New Testament, to describe the imminence of God's coming the imminence of God's coming, just like the mythological sword of Damocles that hung by a thread over the king's throne. It could fall at any moment. It could happen at any time. That's the idea of near and soon in the book of Revelation. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus's return has been near. It could happen any moment. As James says in James 4, behold, the judge is standing at the door. We are just waiting on God's timetable. What's the structure of Revelation? We see this in Revelation 1.19. Right therefore, Jesus says to John, right therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. What are the things that you have seen? Well, that's described in chapter 1. It's the vision of the glorified Christ and the commission to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, what are the things that are? Well, from John's perspective, what was present at that time? It was the spiritual condition of those seven churches. Jesus intimately and intricately knew the spiritual condition of those seven churches in Asia Minor, and he had a specific word of encouragement or rebuke, confrontation, and even in some cases evangelism for those local bodies beginning in Ephesus and going all the way to Laodicea following an ancient postal route uh, throughout Asia Minor. So the things that you have seen, those that are, and then beginning in chapter 4 and onward through the end of the book, those that are to take place after this. In chapters 4 and 5, we see a future vision of heaven's throne room, a future vision of heaven's throne room where the angels of God are worshiping God the Father in chapter 4, and there is present in the middle of this throne room a scroll. The scroll represents the title deed to the entire earth 
It represents authority and the power to execute judgment. And there is sadness and grief because no one can take the scroll. A world that seems out of control, a world that seems given over to sin and destruction, and people are begging for someone to come in, take authority, execute judgment, defeat wickedness, practice justice and righteousness. There's no one who can take it until the one who is both the lion and the lamb comes forward and takes the scroll. And he opens the scroll, seal after wax seal, breaking each one in succession, one after the other. And as each seal is broken, cataclysmic judgments are unleashed upon the earth to both punish the wicked and to bring about the end of this present stage of human history. The six seal judgments are brought about by the Lamb's opening of the scroll. There's a brief interlude in chapter 7 where God demonstrates his power to save both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 7, we see those who belong to Christ from the Jewish nation and those who also belong to Christ from every tribe and tongue and people group. God is not a respecter of persons. Yes, he does have a plan for Israel, but he has a plan for his own regardless of ethnicity from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is on display in the tribulation, and it's also God's heart now for the lost and hurting throughout every people group. The first six trumpet judgments, which are brought about by the seventh seal, take place in chapters 8 and 9. There's an interlude before the seventh trumpet judgment, which demonstrates God's sovereignty. We saw that in chapters 10 and 11. And before we dive into the remaining judgments, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see a depiction of God's enemies and God's response to his enemies. It's in a sense, John zooms out. And actually, in the first paragraph of chapter 12, we see a big picture, a summary statement of Old Testament history. One of the major actors in the time of the tribulation, is the evil one, Satan. And John, by means of a sign that he sees in heaven, sums up Satan's activity throughout the entire Old Testament. Satan has hated God since the beginning, and he has done everything that he can to thwart God's plans. Let's read Revelation chapter 12 together. If you would, please stand as we read Revelation 12. And then I want to say a few words about biblical interpretation, and then we'll dive into the text. Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. You may be seated. Just as a side note, I want to say how thankful I am that the kids are with us today in... That's not quite a joke, but uh, I know sometimes, sometimes, I do this even with my own kids, when they sit in big church, you encourage some of the kids to uh, maybe jot down a few notes, but also draw a picture of what the preacher's talking about. And sometimes the picture's kind of boring, you know, like be kind to one another, tender hearted. It's like, okay, this is, my, this is me giving my sister a hug, right? No, no, this one, guys, this is, this is a good one to draw pictures of. So if you're a kid and you're drawing pictures, I want to see your pictures after the message, because this is... This is a text of scripture, is it not? If you're like me, after reading Revelation 12, you might be tempted to step back and just be kind of shocked by some of the elements you see in this passage. In fact, if you're unfamiliar with Revelation 12 or even with the book of Revelation in general, you might be tempted to ask, how on earth are we going to be able to understand what is written in this passage? And admittedly, this is how many believers feel when they turn to Revelation or to other passages that deal with the prophetic foretelling of future events, such as those found in Daniel, Zechariah, First and Second Thessalonians, and the Olivet Discourses in Matthew. I mean, let's be honest. We are a people who are typically drawn to New Testament epistles, especially the Pauline epistles, or the Psalms, or Proverbs, or the first chapters of Genesis. We, we have a pretty good grasp of these passages of Scripture. But when we come to passages of Scripture like the one before you, sometimes your inclination is to step back and say, I don't know what to do with that. How are we to understand a passage like Revelation 12? How are we to understand the book of Revelation in general? This has been a question that believers have asked throughout church history. In fact, some of my heroes of the faith have employed a completely different method of interpretation when they come to this 66th book that they do not employ in the 65 previous books. How would we understand a passage like Revelation 12? Let me answer that for you. We are to understand Revelation 12 using the exact same process of biblical interpretation that we use for any other passage of Scripture. It doesn't change. God's revelation is consistent, and therefore, our reception and interpretation of that revelation must also be consistent. I want to talk to you briefly about the process of biblical interpretation. How do we understand the scripture? How do we arrive at a correct understanding of the scripture? This is actually a question I get asked a lot, both by kids in the youth group and by other people here at church. How do we know that we are arriving at an accurate understanding of scripture? I want to give you a three-step process to biblical interpretation. The first step is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. And before we dive into this, I want to talk to you about something that was a, a big feature of my life. It's not so much here as we, as we live in Hutch, and we're about three and a half hours away from Kansas City, but when Anna and I first got married, we lived in Southern California, and we were not far from uh, Burbank in a magical land called Ikea. Ikea. And if you are familiar with Ikea furniture, uh, it's basically like Legos for adults, but you can use them uh, for useful things like, you know, making a bed or making a dresser, right? So that's how I always got excited about Ikea. It's like Legos for adults, yay. So you get your piece of Ikea furniture. You go to the big blue and yellow store, you get your piece of Ikea furniture, you bring it home, and there it is sitting out in front of you, all the pieces strewn on the floor of your two-bedroom apartment. And how, what do you do then? Well, first, you've got to have the right tools. Ikea furniture doesn't require a lot of tools, but you do have to have certain tools. And they tell you which tools you need to have at the very beginning of the instructions. Hermeneutics are the tools in your toolbox. You're sitting down looking at a passage of scripture, and it's like all those pieces of Ikea furniture strewn about on the floor of your apartment. You're not sure exactly how to put it together, but you've got to start with the right tools. The right tools tools, hermeneutics. These are fundamental principles that guide one's interpretation. Fundamental principles that guide one's interpretation. Now, you might say, well, where do you get those principles? I'm going to say you get them from the Word of God, which some of you are tracking with me. You might say, ah, that's circular reasoning. You understand the Word of God from principles that you get from the Word of God? Well, we can talk about that later. We don't have time for that this morning, but it's not circular reasoning when you understand the nature of divine revelation. When you understand the nature of divine revelation and you're talking about something that comes from God himself, there has to be a point at which there is no higher authority. And when you talk about the nature of divine revelation, 
you also realize how Scripture describes divine revelation. It's God's light piercing through the darkness of our souls. For those of you who are saved, you know that God's word is true, not because somebody sat down with you and gave you all these reasons why these manuscripts, manuscripts and these archaeological evidence and this textual data is true. You know it's true because God has shined the light of Jesus Christ in your soul. There is no way it can't be true. And if you're not a Christian here today, you might be sitting here thinking, that sounds crazy, that sounds made up. Friend, I can just tell you it is absolutely true. The Psalms say that in his light we see light. And once you submit to the truth of God's word and God's light penetrates your soul, you will understand it to be true. So we get these, we get these principles of hermeneutics from the scripture. They guide our interpretation of the scripture. We'll review some of these basic key hermeneutical principles that guide our interpretation in just a little bit. But let me say at the outset, your hermeneutics are absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. These are the tools in your toolbox. And if the tools call for metric, if the instructions call for metric tools and you have imperial tools, or if it calls for a flathead screwdriver and you have a Phillips head screwdriver, or if it calls for a rubber mallet and you just have a regular old hammer, you're going to wind up with a different looking product than what was originally intended by the designer. Your tools matter. Your hermeneutics matter. First step, hermeneutics. Second step is exegesis. This is the process of using your tools. So you have your tools in your toolbox, and then you have the process of using your tools. This is getting at it. This is tools in action. The Greek word exegesis from, comes from ex-ago. Literally, uh, ago is to lead, to draw, to guide, to direct. Ex is out, like exit. I lead out, I draw out. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis. Eis is like into. I'm reading into the text. False teachers do that all the time. False teachers such as prosperity gospel preachers and faith healers who say they can heal people and yet our hospitals are so still full. They practice eisegesis. They should be ashamed of themselves. Exegesis is what a faithful teacher of the word of God does. They draw out the meaning from the passage. An exegete sits in submission under the text. Sits in submission under the text and lets the text speak for itself. This particularly focuses on the working with the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, translating key words and understanding how each word grammatically and syntactically fits into every sentence, understanding which clauses are major and which clauses are subordinate. The goal is to draw out authorial intent. This is, as we said with our IKEA illustration, the process of using your tools on the disassembled pieces of furniture on the ground in front of you, which leads us to our third step, exposition. Exposition. Hermeneutics affect your exegesis. Your exegesis results in exposition. This is the finished product. Exposition is the presentation of the original authorial intent of the passage. Or to put it in other terms, back to our Ikea illustration, this is if the thing you built, whether it's a bookcase or a bed frame or a dresser, looks exactly like the Swedish person half a globe away designed it to look. Designed it to look. Why go into this description of biblical interpretation? Because I want to answer the question, especially when we look at a passage like Revelation 12, I want to answer the question from the outset of how can good men disagree? How can good men disagree? Now, just a minute ago, I mentioned false teachers, those who teach a false gospel. When I say good men disagree, I'm not talking about false teachers. In no way am I talking about false teachers. Good Bible-believing Christians who love God, who are intelligent, who are passionate about the word of God can disagree. It does not mean that both of them are right, but it does not mean that one of them is a wolf or a heretic. I want to be very clear on that. I want to be very clear on that. The difference is not in the exegesis level. The difference begins in the hermeneutics level. Good men, men that we would sit under and listen to their teaching and benefit from their writings, have very similar hermeneutics. This is why we preach the same gospel. This is why we affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. This is why we have a right understanding of the word of God, that it's inspired and inerrant and infallible and authoritative and sufficient. You know, godly men agree on so much. And yet at certain points, particularly in areas like the book of Revelation and other passages, they differ or they disagree. Why is that? Because at some point they're using different tools. At some point they're using different tools. Again, this does not mean that one is a false teacher and the other is not. No, they're both faithful believers. But it's imperative for us to know that we have the right tools. Because if you have the wrong tools, then the finished product you're going to come up with is not going to fully accurately reflect what God intended. 
you must be sure that you have the right tools. You must be sure that you're employing accurate hermeneutical principles. So briefly, again, before we dive into Revelation 12, let's go over some, not all, not meant to be exhaustive, but just some of those hermeneutical principles that guide our interpretation of the Scripture. This could be the subject of an entire year's worth of study, not even just a semester, but an entire year's worth of study. Lord willing, I hope maybe down the line we could have a whole class on hermeneutics here at Grace Bible Church. But right now, let's just do a very, very, very brief, brief and non-exhaustive overview of some key principles of hermeneutics. First and foremost, what all true Christians would agree on, God's word is absolutely true. God's word is absolutely true. Even when you don't understand it, his word is true and you can trust it. A proud person has to understand everything before they submit to it. A humble person, a humble person submits to God's word even when they don't grasp it. God's word is absolutely true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Second, God's word is absolutely unchanging. God's word is absolutely unchanging. 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25, he writes about the living and biting word of God. And then citing the Old Testament, Peter says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's word is true. God's word is unchanging. God's word, therefore, contains no errors or contradictions in the original manuscripts. No errors or contradictions in the original manuscripts. This opens up a whole field of study called textual criticism. There's both higher criticism and lower criticism. This is one of my favorite things to read about, uh, particularly lower criticism. But suffice it to say, we could go on a huge rabbit trail of this. Suffice it to say, if you have a copy of God's word that is an English Standard Version or a New American Standard Version or a Legacy Standard Bible, or a pre-2011 NIV or a new King James Version, you have a faithful, accurate representation of the original manuscripts of God's Word, and you can trust that Bible. Third, whenever God spoke to his people in the past, he never spoke with any intent to confuse, misrepresent, or mislead his people. Instead, God spoke clearly. This is called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity is a funny word. It's an unclear word that means clear. But he spoke clearly. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion. When God speaks, he speaks so that we can understand. His thoughts are far beyond ours. He is, I think of the smartest person you've ever met. He created that person. God is, I mean, Romans 11, oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's unfathomable. But when he speaks to us, he speaks in a way that we can understand. There are some who would insinuate that the Old Testament was just one giant enigma for thousands of years until the New Testament came along. And then the New Testament unlocked the old. That's not how God speaks. That's not how God communicates. And that's not reflective of God's character. God speaks clearly from the get-go. Fifth, God's word is able to be understood by the believer with the help of the Holy Spirit. What was one of the major rebukes that Jesus said to the Pharisees during his ministry? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? What's implied in those statements? That they had before them in the Old Testament all they needed to know to understand what God wanted them to understand. The problem was not with God. God did not speak with any type of divine speech impediment or stutter. The problem was with the sin in their heart. Sin clouds our minds. Sin clouds our judgment. Sin causes us to pervert and twist the scripture. Jesus says, have you not read? It's a rebuke to the Pharisees. The implied statement there is that this word is clear and you Pharisees in your sin, pride, and arrogance are misunderstanding it. However, Pharisees are not alone in their sin. We all have sin in our hearts and therefore we can all have our minds clouded to one degree or another, which is why we need to pray the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. It's possible to get things wrong. I get things wrong all the time. Bart gets things wrong every now and then. I've maybe seen Josue get like one thing wrong. We are all dependent on God to open our eyes that we may see wondrous things out of his law. Or pray the prayer of Psalm 119.34. Give me understanding. Give me understanding. That's not just hyperbole. The psalmist is begging God, give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. 
Sixth principle of hermeneutic that guides our interpretation. God's word is spiritual food that sustains the soul of the true believer. Psalm 19, 7a. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Seventh, God's word not only sustains the believer, but it is also intended to be applied and obeyed by the true believer. Deuteronomy 29, 29, a lot of people quote the first part of that verse, which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Or as James 1, reminds us, be doers of the word, not hearers only. I know we're getting into some academic theology this morning. I don't want to lose anybody. Please understand, God's word is not something to sit around over coffee tables and debate about with your friends like baseball statistics or civil war facts. It's meant to be applied and obeyed. I went to a great Christian college, but sadly I've seen too many guys who stayed up late in the dorms arguing this theology or that theology eventually walk away from God because everything was up here and it didn't reach down here. It's meant to be applied and obeyed. Eighth, speaking of application, Every passage of God's word has a single meaning, though it may have many applications. Because God's word is true, it is clear, and it is unchanging, therefore every text has one meaning, however it can have many applications. Ninth, since God's word is absolutely true and unchanging, every passage means today exactly what it meant when it was originally given. So when God told Abraham, your offspring will be greater than the stars in the sky, it means now what it meant then. So we have to ask, how did Abraham understand that when God told him that in Genesis 12? Which leads us to our 10th point for this morning, principles of hermeneutics. Later biblical revelation does not therefore alter or reinterpret earlier biblical revelation in any way. Later revelation builds on previous revelation, and it gives us additional information, but later revelation does not change or reinterpret the original meaning of previous revelation. Here's a good example of that. Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 is the first statement where God says, the just shall live by faith. Now, the context of Habakkuk 2 is that God is talking about the coming judgment that's coming from the Chaldeans to punish wicked Judah. And God talks about two types of people in Judah. The proud, arrogant man where everything is not right in his soul, and he's going to try to flee, he's going to try to run, he's going to outrun God's judgment. But just like Johnny Cash saying, you can run on for a long time, sooner or later God will cut you down. The wicked man is going to run, but God says, in contrast, my righteous one shall live by faith. That's what it means in Habakkuk 2. Now, Paul will cite this same verse in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and I think in Hebrews 10. And he builds on what Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans 1, the emphasis is on the fruit of the gospel. When you have faith in the gospel, you have spiritual life. In Galatians 3, it's a contrast to the Judaizers. You truly live if you're living by faith and not trusting in your works. And in Hebrews 10, the emphasis is on eschatological judgment when Christ returns and there's the division between the sheep and the goats. The righteous one shall live by faith. What are we trying to say? Paul uses Habakkuk's words. He builds on Habakkuk's theology but he does not change what Habakkuk originally said. Later revelation does not reinterpret or alter original revelation. The scripture means now what it meant then. Eleventh and finally, therefore, we do not need the New Testament in order to unlock the Old Testament. Rather, since later revelation builds on what was previously revealed, our understanding of the New Testament is only aided by our grasp of the Old Testament. There are some who indicate, there are some who imply that the Old Testament is a box full of mysteries that needs to be unlocked by the new. But you know one of my favorite depictions from the scripture that actually shows that that's not true is? It's in Acts 17. In Acts 17, on Paul's missionary journey throughout Macedonia and Greece, he's making his way through the Greek peninsula, and he comes to a town called Berea. In Acts 17, verses 10 through 11, it says that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These Bereans were experts in the Old Testament. 
Now, if the New Testament or apostolic revelation was needed to make sense of the old, then what the Bereans should have done would have been to say, oh, we're so glad you're here, Paul. Now, thank you for your message. This is clearly apostolic revelation come from God. And because of your words, we can now understand the old. But that's not what they did. These noble Bereans, described so by Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they took their understanding of the Old Testament. It was perspicuous. It was clear. It was able to be grasped. And that was the standard by which they judged apostolic revelation. Does this make sense? Our grasp of the Old Testament affects our understanding of the new, not the other way around. So what does this have to do with Revelation 12? Don't forget, Revelation 12 comes at the end of the revealed canon. And everything that happened in the previous 65 books will help you understand what happens in this book and specifically this chapter. So when you see references to a dragon, you understand we're talking about the serpent who's been around since Genesis 3. When you see references to the wings of an eagle, you understand that this is God acting in deliverance just as he did in Exodus 19 when he says to the people of Israel, I carried you out of Egypt as on the wings of an eagle. Our understanding of the old helps us understand the new. So that's our introduction. And in the last 15 minutes, let's look at our text this morning. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 encourages us by depicting three demonstrations of God's ultimate defeat of Satan. Three demonstrations of God's ultimate defeat of Satan. If you get nothing else from this morning, I hope you go on your way rejoicing, knowing that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan will try to thwart God's plans and kill God's people, and he will not ultimately succeed. If you belong to Christ, you need fear nothing. What can man do to you? Nothing. What's the first depiction? What's the first demonstration of God's ultimate defeat of Satan? God triumphs over Satan through the ministry of the Messiah. Through the ministry of the Messiah. And a great sign appeared in heaven. This word sign is a key term that shows up in the book of Revelation. It's a prophetic vision that that relays events or spiritual truth. A prophetic vision that relays events or spiritual truth. In this sense, it's relaying the summation of Old Testament history, especially in verses 1 through 5. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. We need to ask, who is this woman? We have a great sign in heaven. God is relaying spiritual truth or a depiction of events to his prophet John, to his apostle John. Who is the woman? Well, there's four possible theories of who this woman could be. We see that this woman gives birth to someone, a male child who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. There's no other person that this male child could be other than Jesus Christ. So we have to ask, who is the woman then? Four possible theories. The first is Eve. You know, it was Eve that received the promise in Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman shall come the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And while that is true, from the woman's seed shall crush the one, came the one who shall crush the head of the serpent, Eve does not fit any of the other descriptions of this woman in the rest of the chapter. So we can eliminate Eve. Well, who else could it be? Some have thought maybe it's Mary. Maybe it's Mary. After all, she is the one who was chosen by God to be the mother of Christ. Mary was the one who gave birth to Christ. However, the idea that she is this woman who was taken up into heaven, well, that's a huge assumption. James got the joke. All right. The church. Some have said that this woman represents the church, but we can eliminate this possibility because it was not the church that gave birth to Christ, but rather Christ gave life to the church. So this isn't Eve, it isn't Mary, it isn't the church. Who is it? It's Israel. This is Israel. This is God's covenant people, the people of Israel. She's described in verse 1 as a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. 
That's the same exact terminology that Joseph used to describe in his vision that in Genesis 37 when he was talking to his father Jacob, the sun, the moon, and the stars. That was the description of the patriarchal state of Israel at that time under Jacob, and it's the same terminology that's used here in Revelation 12, 1. Verse 2 says she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This represents the longing of Israel. Throughout all of Old Testament history, they were looking for their Messiah. Think of Simeon at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. Throughout Israel's history, people were looking, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who will give us rest? Is this the one who will restore fellowship with God? Is this the one who will undo the curse? Is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Looking and looking and looking and looking. That's the agony and birth pains, waiting for the promised one to come. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Now, this is Satan. The text clearly says throughout the chapter that this is Satan, and yet he's described as having these horns and these heads and the diadems, which is actually very similar to how the Antichrist is described in chapter 13. And you say, is there confusion here? No, no confusion at all. It's not surprising that both the Antichrist and the evil one, Satan, are described with similar terminology, since the Antichrist is empowered and supported and literally is the puppet of the evil one. Verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so when she bore her child, he might devour it. First part of verse 4 refers to the initial rebellion of Satan in heaven when he said, I will be greater than the Most High. I will ascend to the position of the Most High. I will be like God. And he tried to usurp God's authority, and he was cast down out of heaven. He took a third of the angels with him. Those fallen angels became demons. And his whole agenda throughout the Old Testament was to destroy the coming Messiah. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so when she bore her child, he might devour it. How did Satan try to do this? Genesis 3, God says that from the seed of the woman, the Messiah will come. So what does Satan do? Genesis 6, he sends his demons to have intercourse with human women to try to corrupt and pervert the human race. When that didn't work, later in, first, in 2 Samuel 7, God said that the Messiah would come from the line of David. What does Satan try to do? 2 Kings 11, he uses wicked Athaliah to almost exterminate the entire line of David except for one baby boy that God preserved. On and on and on, Satan attempts this plan of, of trying to kill the promised Messiah. When Jesus was born, Herod, undoubtedly under the influence, whether he realized it or not, under the influence of the evil one, tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. When Jesus began his ministry, what did Satan try to do? Tempt him in the wilderness. Because if he could cause Jesus to sin, even just a little, it would thwart God's plan. But Jesus, of course, fully human and fully, man, uh, fully God, came through victorious and didn't yield one minute. Even up until the last night of Jesus' earthly life, Satan was still trying to thwart God's plans because who was it who entered into Judas? Satan. This has been his MO, his agenda throughout all of Old Testament history, even up until the Gospels, thwart God's plan. Was he victorious? Absolutely not. Even, even when Judas betrayed Jesus over to the Jews and to the Romans, it was still God's plan. It was still God's plan. Jesus cried out, it is finished. He yielded up his spirit and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Satan cannot win, though he tries. Verse six jumps ahead to the midpoint of the tribulation. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's been nourished for 1,260 days. You see, God triumphs over Satan through the ministry of the Messiah. And now we see, beginning in verse six and going into verses seven through 12, God triumphs. God triumphs over Satan through the victory of his servants. Through the victory of his servants, our second point. God triumphs over Satan through the victory of his servants. Verses 7 through 12, now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Job chapter 2 shows us that to a certain level or degree, Satan and his minions can't have access before God. Satan can come and go, but there will come a point. There will come a point at the midpoint of the tribulation where Satan's activity is restricted to the earth and the earth alone. 
It is the first of many defeats that he will suffer, and it will make him only more and more furious. How does God do this? He does this through his ministering spirits, the angels, particularly through Michael the archangel and his angels with him. They will defeat Satan and restrict his theater of focus to planet Earth specifically. He will be thrown down. So this is through the might of the angels. Now, secondly, subpoint through the faith of the saints. Now, this is particularly encouraging and applicable for us this morning. Now, these are tribulation saints, but their faith can be our faith as well. Look at verse 10 and tw- through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan has slings and arrows. He has fiery darts. He has schemes and wiles, and he attacks the believer in a variety of ways, some that we can understand and some that we don't fully grasp. But one thing he does do, believer, and maybe this might be encouraging to some of you who struggle with assurance at times, he accuses. He accuses. He causes doubt. He causes guilt. Sins that have been forgiven, he resurfaces in your mind. He is the accuser of the brethren, How do you overcome that? Through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. John writes, 1 John, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the perfect defense attorney. The perfect defense attorney. And that's how the saints overcome, both in the tribulation and by way of application for us now. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How will tribulation saints conquer over Satan? Same way you conquer over Satan today, by the blood of the Lamb, by trusting in someone stronger than you, by trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who gave his life up for sinners and is calling you to come and trust in him, be washed in his blood, be forgiven and cleansed. Faith in him is how you conquer. Faith in him is how you conquer. That's what conquer and overcome, they mean the same thing. It's nikao. It's where we get Nike. It means I win. I am victorious. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, trusting in Christ. Believers conquer by the blood of the Lamb, trusting in the one who was slain for them and rose for them. Believers also conquer by the word of their testimony, maintaining your gospel witness. Not just a quiet witness where you live out your Christianity, but you don't say anything, but a verbal, bold proclamation of the gospel that you back up with your life. This is what Hebrews calls holding fast the confession of your faith without wavering. Believers conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. Third, by their loving loyalty to Christ. Look at verse 11 again. They loved not their lives even unto death. Friend, if you love Jesus Christ as your highest treasure and highest joy, then you do not need to fear any persecution. None. And persecution is coming. We're not in the tribulation yet, and I do believe that we will be raptured before the tribulation. But that's not to say that persecution won't happen. In fact, God promises, 1 Timothy 6, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. God triumphs over Satan through the ministry of the Messiah, through the victory of his servants, and finally, through the preservation of Israel. Verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's a reference to the three and a half years or the 42 months or the 1,260 days. That terminology that's used repeatedly in both Daniel and Revelation shows us that this is the second half of the tribulation. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Verse 12, which we just lightly glossed over, says that the dragon has come to earth in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His clock is ticking. There's a fixed amount of days before he knows that the game is up. It's 1,260 days. This is the midpoint of the tribulation. And again, Satan hates God and hates God's people, and he'll do anything he can to thwart God's promises because if he can break a single one of God's promises, then God loses, but God can't lose. So no matter what Satan does, it is always thwarted. He tries to chase after Israel as Israel flees into the wilderness. And verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Very reminiscent of Korah's rebellion and Dathan and Abiram in Numbers 16, 
where Moses' authority was challenged, and literally the earth opened up and swallowed those rebels. God's sovereign over all creation. If God wants to open up the floor right now in this room to swallow the rebels, he can. I'm not saying anybody here is a rebel. I'm just saying God always wins. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. We're going to see in chapter 13 that that sea is from where the Antichrist comes from. But let's point out one thing here before we close. There are other believers around the globe. Yes, Satan can't get to the Jews that are protected by God in the wilderness, but there will be other believers, Jew and Gentile, scattered around the globe. And it will be a time of horrible persecution, torturing, martyrdom. These people will have faith that will last until the end. They'll be faithful all the way until the end, as we're going to see when we look at chapter 13. What do we do with a chapter like Revelation 12? How do we respond? I'm going to give you four short points of application. First, praise God for the victorious work of Jesus Christ, the appointed Messiah. When he said it is finished, he meant it. God wins. Christ wins. Second, always remember that the devil is God's devil. And always remember that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John Phillips, a commentator, says this, Satan will do his worst, but God will not allow him to succeed. He will not even have the satisfaction of hindering for a moment God's plans, all of which proceed on schedule. Even the exact number of the days involved in the tribulation has been written in the word of God for centuries. Third, what can you do now? Ensure that you truly do have the kind of faith that overcomes the enemy. There's different kinds of faith. James makes this point in James. There's the faith of demons. There's the faith of the second soil and the third soil that receives God's word for a short time and then whether because of the pressures of the world or the pleasures of this world forsakes Christ. Make sure, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, that you examine yourself to see that you are in the faith because it's only true faith in God that values Jesus Christ as the highest treasure, as the treasure that you find in the field and you sell all that you have to buy that field so that you have that treasure. That's the only type of faith that lasts. And fourth and finally, Praise God that all his promises always hold true and that his plans are never, ever thwarted. Every promise he ever made to the church, to Israel, to individual believers, every promise will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the gospel that gives us hope that the Messiah came and he was victorious. And now we don't need to fear, though the evil one may rage. Uh, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Lord, we thank you for that promised victory. Help us to sing to you now with one last song and go on our way rejoicing that you are the victorious God. We pray this in your name. Amen.